If you would please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will come to our text uh, in a bit. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then later, he wrote to the Colossians, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Today we begin a new series, and a fundamental assumption or guiding principle is found in the two verses I've just read. That is, in whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. It is imperative that we embrace this, we agree to it, before we go any further in this series. Otherwise, at difficult junctures, and there will be those junctures, we might be tempted to bail on the principle and go in a different direction. Beyond the topic of the new series, which we'll get to in a moment, we need to ask ourselves, why do we do anything? What is our reason or our motivation? What guides our actions? What guides our thinking? And this is important, and not merely for the series, but for our lives, our living in general, that whatever we do, Paul tells us, we do it for the glory of God. So, those of us that are here today, let us agree as we begin that this principle is one that we will embrace and that we will follow. At this point, you might be wondering, well, what is this new topic? What is this new series that we're going to engage, that we're going to embark upon? I'd like for the next few weeks to look at the matter of grief. Grieving the loss of a loved one who has died. When death shatters a close and cherished relationship, how are we as Christians to grieve to the glory of God? Can we grieve and bring glory to God? Our text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 13 where Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, that is, those who have died, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. That is to say, Paul wants them to grieve in a Christian, in a biblical way, not as others do. And so that's what I want us to look at. What is biblical grieving? As Christians, how are we to grieve the loss of a loved one? You might ask, why are we looking at this? Why this series? Well, there are a number of reasons. For some of us, this has seemed to have been a season of grief in which we have suffered the loss of loved ones and have carried that grief for some time. For others, you may not have suffered loss, but in time you will because this is part of the human condition. And the time will come when people will grieve our deaths, our passing. And if, as Paul tells us, we are to do all to the glory of God, how is this to shape, how is this to inform our grieving? How are we to grieve? 
what I hope to do in the next few weeks is to examine and present to you a biblical view of grieving. Today we will lay the foundation, as often the case with a new series, lay down the foundational perspectives and principles that will help us, Lord willing, in the weeks to come um, to understand how we are to grieve and to bring glory to God at the same time. So let's begin by laying down some, some issues, some perspectives, some principles. First of all, the nature of human beings. What does it mean to be a human being? As we have seen time and time again, it is basic for a basic belief for Christians that we are made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God. And what all this entails has been the subject of much debate. But what we do see throughout Scripture is that human beings have two aspects to their being, the material and the non-material. That which we can perceive by the senses we take to be the material, that is, that which is physical, corporeal, touchable, visible. Um, and I think most people would agree this is what makes someone human. Unfortunately, in our day, I think this is all that people see as what makes someone human. They only see the material and they don't recognize the non-material. But what we find in Scripture is that there is the physical aspect to us and there is the non-material, or if you wish, the spiritual aspect to us as well. Some would refer to this as the duality of man, and I, I get really nervous around that word, um, because what it seems to imply is that, that I'm made up of two parts that come together and can go apart and can come together. And I think we are holistic, we are whole beings. We are physical, and then we also have that aspect which is not physical, which is non-material or spiritual, invisible, if you wish, cannot be perceived by the senses. It is clear in Scripture, however, that there are two parts to being human. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in this same letter where our text is found. It's later. It's in chapter 5. May, the God, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul envisions is that at the return of Jesus both the material and the non-material aspects of God's people will be made holy. I think for some of us that's really important because we imagine that only our souls or our spirits will be sanctified and that our bodies will just sort of be dust. But it is, in fact, both aspects of our being. We are creatures who have both the physical and the non-physical part. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, what is the essence of physical death? What we find in scripture is that physical death was imposed on humanity by God. That's important for us to recognize. And that physical death is nothing less than the radical separation of the two entities that compose us, the material and the non-material. That's why I get nervous when people speak of duality because they make it seem like the, you know, the spiritual or the non-material, the invisible and the visible, yeah, they can be apart, they can come together, they can be apart. Um, 
among the people I grew up uh, with in the mountains, known as pagans, um, they believed that the spirit would actually leave the body every night. Um, and it would come back in the daytime, or before you'd wake up at dawn, and then you would w- walk around with the two parts of you. How do you know if you're dead? Well, when someone dies, they would take the horns of a water buffalo and put them on bamboo near the river, so that when the spirit would go out at night, you're like, oh, I'm dead. And then the spirit would go on to heaven instead of trying to go back to the body. So I get really nervous when people speak of this duality because death is, in fact, a radical tearing apart of things that should not be taken apart. That is the soul, the invisible, the immaterial part of me and the material part of me that is the body. They are separated. That's what death is. We've seen this before, that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it resulted in a number of deaths, of separations. There was spiritual death. They were separated from God. There was psychological death. Adam was separated from himself. He became afraid. There was social death. Adam and Eve were separated from each other. They recognized that they were naked and had to cover themselves up. There was ecological death in which man is now separated from creation, if you wish, and creation resists his attempts to subdue it. And then there is what we most normally associate with death, that is physical death. The soul is separated from the body. James uses this as an illustration in a different direction, but I think it's helpful here. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. To James and his readers, um, death involves the separation of the body and the soul, the spirit. Jesus' last words on the cross point to this as well. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Simply put, the spirit of Jesus left his body, went to be with the Father, but his body remained on the cross. It was later taken down and buried in the buried, I'm sorry, the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. There was a separation. The body was left behind and the spirit was taken to be with the Father. Now, as to this radical separation that we call death, two things need to be emphasized. First of all, death is unnatural. It is the result of sin. It is not a natural part of life. It is a violent, I can't stress that enough, it is a violent and unnatural intrusion into the human experience. This is not what we were made for. One author has written, I think rather helpfully, to counter modern thinking about death. Contrary to modern myths about death, that death is a natural part of life, the cessation of existence, that there is a natural dignity in dying well. That the Bible paints a portrait, its portrait of death with the most stark and sobering colors. Nowhere in the Bible is death treated as something natural, as something that can be easily domesticated or treated as part of life. No encouragement is given us in the Bible to minimize the terror and fearfulness of death, our last enemy as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.
death has been a part of the human experience since Adam and Eve sinned. And as a result, I think we may be tempted to see it as natural, and it is not. Death in the human race began with the fall into sin. It is the divinely appointment, appointed punishment for humanity's disobedience in Adam. Adam was told that if he ate from the forbidden tree, he would surely die. And he became liable to death through his act of disobedience. If you read Romans 5, particularly verses 12 through 21, Paul makes it clear that sin and death are, in fact, inseparably linked. So the essence of death is the separation of the soul from the body. And it is an unnatural separation of that which constitutes us. We are made in the image of God. We have that part which can be seen and that part which cannot be seen. It is unnatural. But the second thing I would tell you about death is that it is temporary. The separation of the body and the spirit is temporary. I think we need to think about this because we tend to think of it as as being permanent. We won't see this person again. All of human history is moving to the point at which Jesus will come back. He will come back in glory and power. And at that point, all souls and all bodies, all human souls and bodies will be reunited in the general resurrection. It isn't just Christians who will be resurrected. All people will be. And then there will be the day of judgment. Jesus spoke of this in John 5. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So death is temporary. It is unnatural, and it is temporary. So, if we are to grieve in a way that brings glory to God, we need to be clear about these principles. That first of all, we are made in the image of God, consisting of body and soul. That physical death is a radical, I would say, violent separation of soul and body. This tearing apart of soul and body is unnatural, and this death is temporary. Having established this, we will move on to some principles. But let's be clear before we go on. We were not made for death. The experience that tears us apart, literally, in the case of our own deaths, when our souls will be taken from our bodies, or emotionally, when someone who is dear to us is taken from us, this is not what we were made for. It is a tearing apart. It is an act of violence. How are we to bring glory to God in the midst of our grieving over the loss of a loved one, someone we have lost to death? Again, this is to prepare us for the Sundays to come, but for things for you to think about. First of all, our thoughts or our thinking are to be under our control. The Bible has a lot to say about our thinking. And, our, and the relationship to our minds. It, it's, it speaks a lot about our minds. In the familiar passage in Philippians chapter 4, Paul wrote, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
If we take Paul seriously here and we apply it to our minds, to our thinking, then we will be guided in the matter of godly grieving, what it means to grieve as God's people. The verb to think that Paul uses here means to consider, to ponder, to force one's mind to dwell on the things that Paul has mentioned. Simply put, we are responsible for the direction and the focus of our thoughts. Even in the midst of crushing grief, brought about by the death of someone dear to us, what Paul writes is still true. We can't say, well, you know what Paul wrote in Philippians 4.8, that's true, but not when I'm grieving. I, that, that's set aside for the time. No. No, it is not suspended. We are still to control our thoughts and to think on certain things. If we suspend it, or if we say it can be suspended, it not only reduces our capacity to glorify God, I would argue it also deepens the pain and poverty of our condition. That if, in fact, we do not control our thinking, if we do not think on these things, then we will find ourselves in a greater darkness than we are already in because of the loss of a loved one. What Paul has written is for our good, and we should take it to heart. In Colossians 3, he wrote, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What Paul would have us think about, the Lord willing, we will see in the Sundays in the weeks to come. But what I want you to see at this point is that we are responsible for the things we set our minds on. It's not always easy. And sometimes our minds seem to run away from us. But we are responsible. We're responsible to direct and focus our thoughts even in the midst of the darkness of grief and sorrow. Now, if we control our thinking, this does not mean, and I'm not implying, I don't want to at all, imply that somehow we will no longer suffer grief. That the pain of sorrow will leave us because we have controlled our minds. Not at all. Not at all. Rather, in the midst of our grief, which can be painful, sorrowful, lengthy, and even debilitating. It can, it can knock you to your knees. The kind of grieving that brings glory to God includes directing our thoughts. This glorifies God. And it helps, I think, to ease, not to eliminate, not to get rid of our grief, the pain of our sorrow. So that's the first thing. Our thoughts, we are to control our thoughts in the midst of grief. Secondly, our emotions are not to control us, nor are they to rule us. And here I think we come to the heart of the matter, most of us think, when it comes to the matter of grief. The matter of our emotions. Again, let's be clear, we are made in the image of the Creator. And that image includes emotions. We certainly hear this in Adam, even before there is sin, when he breaks into song, a joyful song, when God brings Eve to him. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had emotions. After 
the fall, they have these emotions which have, like everything else in creation, been infected by sin. So that as fallen creatures, oftentimes we feel things we ought not to feel, and then sometimes we feel things to a degree that we should not feel them, that we are overwhelmed, if you wish, by our emotions. So what is the answer? Well, we are not Stoics. The answer is not to suppress or to get rid of our emotions. We're not to become Vulcans and somehow suppress our feelings. Otherwise, how do we explain the presence of deep emotions in the life of Jesus? In the story of Lazarus found in John 11, we read, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. John 11:35. The question arises, why did Jesus weep? And I think part of the answer is found two verses earlier when we read that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Um, the King James says he groaned in the spirit. Um, the word that is used is a word that is used of a horse that is snorting. It is as though a person snorts with anger or indignation. One translation has for this, he let out a groan of indignation from his innermost being. We find this word found in Mark 14 when a woman poured perfume on Jesus' head and people were quite upset. They were indignant. They responded emotionally. It's the same word that is used. So there is an aspect of anger but we read that he was troubled. Jesus was deeply troubled. So we find him deeply indignant and we find him troubling, deeply troubled. And then when the tomb is there, he bursts into tears. Why did he react this way? Was it empathy? Was it grief? Was it pain? Something like that. I would say for the purposes of this series, it really doesn't matter. The reality is that Jesus felt and expressed deep emotions. And here it was grief. If we believe Jesus to be sinless, then we can agree that his expression of deep emotion was not wrong. Jesus' weeping was not wrong. It was not sinful. His indignation, his being troubled inside himself, was not sinful. What we do see is that he did not allow his emotions to overcome him. We are not to be stoic in the face of grief, but neither are we to allow our emotions to rule us, which I will tell you is easier said than done. In our text in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul wants to make it clear that our grieving is to be different. We're not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. In Romans 12:15, he wrote to the Romans, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. You will notice that he does not say rejoice, if you happen to be in a rejoicing mood. Weep, if you have to be, happen to be in a weeping mood. No, what, you, what in fact may happen is this. You may in fact find yourself in a joyful mood rejoicing 
And then you come upon a brother or sister who is in a state of mourning. And what are you to do? What should you do? I think what Paul would tell us is you should recognize that your present personal emotional state does not have ultimate authority. You can't say to this person, well, you know, I would mourn with you, I would weep with you, but I'm just really jazzed right now. I'm really happy. Things are going well for me and I'm rejoicing. No, your emotions don't rule you. You are to rule over your emotions. And so you may, in fact, be filled with joy and come on a brother and sister who, for legitimate reasons, is grieving and weeping. And Paul says you are to weep with that person. You are to weep with that person. In the spirit-empowered self-control, we can direct our minds and we can also direct our emotions so that we can rejoice. Are there times when you've met someone who is just filled with joy and your life is in the toilet and Paul says rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Paul, I'm not in the mood. That's not the issue, is it? We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. God gave us our emotions. Have no doubt of that. But he did not create them to have ultimate authority over us. The difficulty, I think, in following this command and our frequent failure to follow it does not alter the calling in our lives. There are times in grief when it seems that our emotions do overwhelm us. That control is something we seem to have lost sight of. It may be that we will fail in this area. But when we fail in this area, as in any other area, our guilt and sin are covered by the blood of Christ. We are to confess. We must look to the Spirit, He who lives within us, who indwells us, to make an ongoing, spiritually directed effort to rein in our emotions during our grieving. Again, we are to weep. We are to be sorrowful. We are to mourn. But these are not to control us. They are not to control us. Third principle that I would have you keep in mind is that the intermediate state is real but temporary. That is to say, the intermediate state is between when we die here and when Jesus returns. That is, when Jesus comes back, there will be the great resurrection. But in between death and that time, we will call, for the sake of this series, the intermediate state. Scriptures don't say a lot about this, but Lord willing, next week we will look at this more in detail. It says a lot more about the final state of believers. And so I think oftentimes we sort of skip over this uh, death and then we think of heaven, you know, the final state. But there is something between now and then, a temporary state in which a person is until Jesus returns. There is enough in the Bible, though, I think, to enable us to face the intermediate state for ourselves, because death is a terror to us, that we can face it with confidence and with joy. But also it will assist us greatly as we grieve over the loss of a loved one, when we wonder where are they, what's going on with them.
As I said, the Lord willing, next Sunday we will look at this. In Revelation 14:13, we read, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. In the Lord is a key phrase we find throughout the New Testament. In Christ, in the Lord, I think I read somewhere, we find it over 120 times in Paul's writings alone. What it boils down to is it means to be a child of God, to be in Christ. To be in Christ, to be a child of God, how am I supposed to grieve? How am I to face the loss of a loved one? It is a deeply emotional reality, but it need not be wrong. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah this way. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Grieving need not be wrong. In all that we do, we are to bring glory to God. In John 21, the resurrected Jesus spoke to Peter. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. I think we're much more comfortable with that notion that somehow in my death I would bring glory to God. Uh, Peter uh, died, tradition tells us, crucified upside down. He died as a martyr. Um, Wouldn't be my first choice, but I think I could see how I could bring glory to God in that type of a death. But to bring glory to God in grieving, that's perhaps something we haven't thought about. It seems too hard. Our emotions threaten to overwhelm us. It is my prayer and my hope that in this series we might come to learn how to grieve with grace and bring glory to God even in the darkest moments of our lives as we grieve the loss of loved ones. Let's pray together. Our Father, indeed, death is the enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed. Loved ones have been taken from us. One day we will be taken from our loved ones. I fear that, as with many aspects of our lives, we we do not think as Christians or as your people, but as non-believers. And since everyone seems to experience grief, we just assume that we will experience it as others do. It is my prayer, Lord, that in the weeks to come, we will see that as your people, we are to grieve in such a way that will bring glory to you. Because in everything we do, we are to do it to your glory. And that means not only on the brightest days of our life, on our happiest moments, but in our darkest days. That wherever we are, whatever we're going through, by your grace, we can bring glory to you. Help us to think on the things we've looked at today. Prepare us as we continue this series in the Sundays to come. 
We pray for those that aren't with us today because of sickness or they're traveling. Remember Gia and her mom. Watch over them. I thank you that you brought us here today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.